Well, we're going to talk about that righteousness that has been just given to us as a gift this morning. And there are several places that I want you to go with me to before we get started to save time. So if you have your Bibles, and I trust that you do, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 25 and, and put something there. And by the way, I ordered you bookmarks this week. I'll put them in the pews. You can grab a few, keep them in your Bible, try to keep the kids from eating them, and you'll always have them. And when I send you to places, you'll go like, oh yeah, we've got bookmarks here. But we're going to be doing this in the book of Romans. Paul practically quotes the entire Old Testament in the book of Romans. The gospel is built on the Old Testament. And so we're constantly going to be going back to the Old Testament because I always like your eyes to see it. And if you see it, I have to do little work in proving it because it's before you in the text. So Deuteronomy 25 is one. Then go to Psalms 98. I put them in order for you. Go to about the middle, find Psalm 98. So you've got Deuteronomy 25. Now you're mar marking Psalm 98. And then once you get that marked, keep making your way to the right. And you'll come across the book of Amos. He's where things get thin. If you make it to Matthew, you've made it too far. How does it go? We need one of the kids to help us. Hosea, Joel, Amos. Mark Amos chapter 8. And then after Amos comes Jonah and Zephaniah. And you need to back up. You've gone too far. So you've got Deuteronomy 25, Psalm 98, now Amos chapter 8. And once you get that marked, go with me to Romans chapter 1 for the reading of the word of our Lord this morning. We're back in verses 16 and 17. We're dealing with the last part of these passages and then we're going to move on. Things will pick back up pace as we fall into verse 18. But we really had to slow down. I told you 16 and 17 is Paul's thesis statement for his entire letter. And so really I've just taken my time just introducing all the ideas that he presents for us here. And today may be the most treasured one. That's really hard to say. <laughs> They're all a treasure, but certainly this one is. So if you're with me in Romans 1, let me invite you to stand one more time. I want to read verses 16 and 17, and then we will turn to the Lord in prayer. Paul writes in the power of the Holy Spirit, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it stands written eternally. But the righteous man, he shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, again, we praise you for what we've already seen you do this morning. We praise you for the faith that has been manifested in the life of a child. That gift of faith that brings him into the gift of righteousness and the gift of salvation and it's all of grace and it was all perfected for us through the work and through the life and through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and we will forever praise your name for being a God who has redeemed his people through grace. Father, I thank you for this precious group of people that have gathered in your name this morning to worship you, to call out to you in prayer, to sing to you in song, and now to sit before the mighty word of God. The word that was sounded forth that gave life to everything. And the word that continues to be sounded forth that raises the dead to life and grants life eternal. So, Father, as we sit before the Word of God this morning, I pray that we would do so with thankful hearts and joyful hearts, longing to hear the Word of God just like we long to draw our next breath. And I pray that your Word would manifest its power in our lives and change us to be more like your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Father, I pray that you would call to the lost and it would be an effectual call that manifests faith in their heart. And I pray that you'd sanctify the saint, again, making us more like Christ. Lord, help us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last time we were in 16 and 17, I tried to introduce faith. I was a bit naive. I thought I could do it. Uh, it took me, I think it was an hour and five minutes, and I must have said something controversial because it's already had five times more views than I ever get. I don't know what I said, but I stirred the water somewhere. I guess I'll find up soon enough. But anyway, this morning I want us to talk about the word righteousness. Now, 16 and 17, the subject is the gospel. And I told you that Paul will be talking about the gospel for the next 11 chapters. And then once you hit 12, you'll see the effect that the gospel is supposed to have in our lives. But Paul here has introduced three words that I've tried to walk through. One is the gospel itself, but he also introduces us to the word salvation, the word faith, and the word righteousness. And we learn that Paul has tied all three of those words together and you can't cut the ties. For instance, I said last week that there is no salvation apart from faith. There's no way anyone will ever be in heaven in the presence of God unless, of course, they came by way of faith and faith alone. There is no faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. There is no salvation. You can't, we may theologically talk about those words differently, but you can't separate those words practically. It's not possible. Likewise, salvation guarantees and grants righteousness. There will never be an unrighteous man, woman, or child in heaven. Everyone there will have one particular kind of righteousness, and that is the righteousness of God. In other words, if you've been saved, you've been saved through faith alone, and you've been granted the gift of righteousness, and you will stand before God, and that is the one thing that He will look for in you, the righteousness of His Son. If it's there, you're in. If it's not, you're out. It's really that simple. So you can't, under, you can't separate faith and salvation and righteousness. It, it can't be done. But I do want us to try to speak about righteousness all by itself in a way that we can better understand it. So I'm going to try to introduce this word because the next several chapters, Paul's going to deal with the subject of righteousness. Now, there's three things, and I'll give you just my outline because I really want this to form in your mind. I'm going to talk about three things in regard to righteousness. Number one is the source of all righteousness. Now, that's a Sunday school question. If I ask you what or who is the source of all righteousness, everyone in here, if they said, God, you got it right. He is the source of all righteousness. Secondly, I want to talk about how righteousness was defined for us, and God spent the entire Old Testament defining what righteousness is, okay, in the law. And then the third thing we're going to talk about, we'll move from the Old Testament into the New Testament where righteousness is found in the gospel. So its source, its definition, and then finally where it's found in the gospel. Now, I apologize for the distraction. I'm going to have to do that a lot today or I'm going to lose my voice. I can already tell. But let's start with this source. Let me ask you the question, what makes God God? Well, that's a question worth your thinking. And in fact, the Bible answers that question for us because it starts with defining God through the action that God has taken. What makes God God? He made all things. Creation is the very first thing that's mentioned in the Bible. And if you're still in Romans 1, if you'll look with me down in verse 20 of chapter 1, Paul's gospel includes creation. For since the creation of the world, you see, Paul can't preach the gospel without speaking about creation, nor should we. Because it's the one thing that makes God, God. If He did not make everything, He has no right to rule anything. And that makes sense to our lives. If we made it, we own it, we have a right to do with it exactly what we want. It makes us Lord, if you will, over what it is that we have made. Likewise with God, because He made everything spiritual and physical, he therefore is God and has every right to be sovereign and rule over all things. And so he does, whether the world recognizes that or not. It's that one thing that makes God God, his action, his initial action. The second thing that makes God God is his character. God is God because his character is perfect. 
He would not be God if there was a flaw in his character, if there was an error in his ways, if there was wrongdoing, if there was wrong thinking. He could not be God. The fact that he is God means that he is perfect in everything. He always does what is right without fail. In fact, David, when he speaks about God in Psalms 11, listen to David's words. For the Lord is righteous and he loves righteousness. That is the passion of God, righteousness. Now, I know that might be a big theological word, but we can reduce it down really simply. Righteousness is nothing more than doing right. That's it. Just doing right. Having the right thought, having the right plan, having the right way, judging right, doing right, speaking right, never failing to do what's not right. Always, always right. That makes God God. Obviously, we understand we're not like that. Love to be like that. Want to be like that. And we'll be like that one day by the grace of God. But as of right now, not yet for us. But for God, it's always been the case. He is righteous because he never fails to do what is right. Now, I know that I would also use the word holiness. And we could talk about the difference of that if you'd like to after service. But I'm going to use those interchangeably. The character of God is holy and he is holy because he always does what is right. But this morning, don't get me confused because I'm speaking about the righteousness of God. Now, there's two aspects. And you'll find me as I walk all the way through here. And I, I believe Scripture is uh, consistent about this. There's always, two, there's always two things. When we think about righteousness in respect to God, we think about His judgment. Because in the judgment of God, God is always right and perfect in everything that He does. Now, that's our expectation of a judge. We would hope that if we ever found ourselves in trouble and we were hauled into a courtroom and we stood before a judge, we would hope that he would judge righteously. In other words, he would judge according to the law and that he would do what was right and he would not show favoritism, right? He would not accept a wink. He would not accept a handshake or he would not accept money at a table to change what is right because we all know what is right and what is wrong and we expect judges who make judgment in our land to be right, to not be swayed by an agenda, to not be swayed by politics or power or any other thing. Our expectation of them is to be just, fair, impartial, right, and to bring judgment down upon the wicked. And we all know we don't live in that place. We want to live in that place. And I'm sure there are men who sit on judge sheets that are like that. I certainly hope so. I believe that I have a dear friend that's a judge that does that. But I know predominantly in the country that we live in today, that is simply not the case. We see impartiality and we see winks and we see handshakes and we see things, judgments made that are strictly along political lines. And we groan in our inner spirit because we know that's not right. There's a right and there's a wrong and the wrong should always be punished. And thank God that God is not swayed by any of those things. Wrong is always punished. In fact, the righteous judgment of God is one of the first things that Paul brings up. If you'll notice verse 18 of chapter 1, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Even now, and we'll talk about this next week, present tense, even now the wrath of God is being poured out on everything that is unrighteous and unholy and unfit for His glory. Because He is a just and righteous judge. In fact, I'll do a bit one better than that. Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 5, where Paul writes, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the what? says it very clearly. The day of the righteous judgment of God. So when we think about righteous, the first thing that you have to consider is judgment. And you have to understand that God is judge over everything because He's made everything. But we can relax, we can have peace because He is a righteous judge and He will not fail to come down on all wrongdoing and sin. In fact, it's not just what's visible, it's invisible unrighteousness. Look at verse 16 of chapter 2. Paul writes, On that day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. 
Now that should terrify you just a little bit because when we go into a courtroom in our days, it's just what's been done, what's been visible, what we can prove, what has evidence to it. But that's not the way in the courtroom of God because in the courtroom of God, everything is open and laid bare before Him whom we have to do. He will judge the secrets. Now that should terrify us all. Everything you think you've hid, you may have hid from man, you might even hid from yourself, but you have not hid it from God. And He is a righteous judge and He will come down on every careless word the Bible says we've ever spoken. God will reign as judge and it will be just and it will be righteous and it will be true because nothing is hidden from Him. Everything is uncovered before Him and we praise Him for that. Second thing that we need to consider about the righteousness of God is the fact that He is righteous to keep His promises. God couldn't do what's right unless what He said came to pass. Unless all of His promises came true, God would never be right. But because He is right, everything He's ever said comes to pass. Every promise He has ever made, He fulfills. And the original promise took place in Genesis chapter 3 when man fell. And we began to understand that this God, our God, who had us or witnessed our rebellion against Him, would be the same God who would save us from our rebellion, our death. That form of a promise that was shaped in Genesis 3 that begins to quickly take place once you hit Genesis 12. And then he's off and running and we see that promise being fulfilled before our very eyes. In fact, when God had Moses walk into the land of Egypt and deliver them from their slave, uh, slave owners, God was displaying his righteousness because he had promised them that he would deliver them. In fact, he tells Moses, listen, by the promise that I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I have remembered that promise and I will rescue my people. And so when God in those mighty ten plagues walks in and rescues His people, you need to understand that was a display of righteousness. God was doing what was right because He had promised to save them. And here He came in a mighty way and He rescued and saved His people. That's what we have in the gospel because Egypt's nothing more than a foreshadowing for us in the gospel. When Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for what? Salvation. The gospel itself is the grandest display of the righteousness of God. I promise to save you. And I have done so through my son. And we lift our hands and we declare righteous, righteous, righteous is our God. He has never failed, not once. He always does what is right. So when we talk about righteousness, we understand that it is all of God. In fact, these two things that we just talked about, judgment as well as rescue, is often celebrated in the Scriptures. Now, I could have just read this to you, but I want you to see it. Go back with me to Psalms 98. I want to read the entire Psalms to you because it's a celebration of the righteousness of God Exactly in the two ways that we just described. Psalms 98. The psalmist writes, O sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done wonderful things. His right hand and His holy arm have gained the victory for Him. Notice, the Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. In other words, salvation and righteousness is used synonymously there. God promised to deliver. He's delivered. Therefore, God is righteous. And so this psalmist is worshiping God for the display of His righteousness. In verse 3, He has remembered His loving kindness. He has remembered His faithfulness to the house of Israel. And notice, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Now worship breaks out, and rightly so. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy. Sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre. With the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn. Shout joyfully before the King, the Lord. Now it's not just men. Notice creation gets swept up into the worship as well. Let the sea roar in all it contains the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Why? Because God saves. 
But notice the righteous judgment of God in verse 9 because he, include, he concludes this worship hymn with this. Before the Lord, for He is coming to judge the earth and He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity or, or fairness. So again, whoever wrote this beautiful psalm is worshiping God for that exact reason. God is righteous to judge and His judgments are perfect. And God is righteous to save, and He has saved His people. Therefore, worship the Lord for His righteousness. Now you can head back with me to Romans chapter 1 if you like. We'll see when we get to it that the gospel is also a celebration. And that's why when Paul writes Romans 16, and I, you can just sense the height of his emotions when he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. He's reflecting on not only the righteousness that we receive through the gospel, but the righteousness of God on display through the gospel. Paul is overjoyed at this righteousness of the Lord. In fact, I had this thought as well, that our experience in heaven will be of righteousness from beginning to end. We recite these words almost every December near Christmas time. Isaiah chapter 9, let me read them to you. It says, for a child would be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. And listen, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. It is going to be our eternal experience under the righteous reign and rule of the righteous Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, when we get to heaven, everything's going to be right. Every single thing is going to be right. And the judge sitting upon the throne, he is perfect in all of his righteousness. Everything he says will be right. You see why heaven's going to be peaceful and joyful? Because there will be absolutely no presence of evil doing, of sin, of any sort of shadiness or hiddenness. There will be no secrets in heaven. Everything will be perfect, open, and laid bare, and we will worship God in all righteousness because He has made it that way. So that is the source of all righteousness. And the plan for God is for His people that they be righteous. Now, if you remember in the Old Testament, just in way of summary, but I'll show you in more detail, righteousness is commanded. When God rescued his people and brought them to himself, this is what, in effect, he was saying, I am a righteous God, therefore you're going to be righteous. You're going to reflect the character of your heavenly Father, therefore he commanded his people to be righteous. It says a number of times, Leviticus 11 is one of those places where the Lord speaks and He says, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God, thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. So the Lord rescued His people, then He commanded His people, now you're going to do what's right. In fact, when you see Moses' understanding of the law, listen to Moses speaking to the people in Deuteronomy 6. Moses says, so the Lord commanded us, to observe every statute, all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, for our survival. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all of His commandments before the Lord our God, just as He has commanded us. That was one of Moses' sermons to his people. Listen, if we obey this law, it will be righteousness for us. Because Moses understood what God was doing in the giving of the law. We have to keep this law. It will be righteousness for us and we will honor our God who is righteous. Of course, for those of you, and maybe all of us by now, who cherish the doctrine of election, you do realize that that was the reason that you were chosen. Ephesians 1.4, Paul wrote, Just as He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. If you ever ask that question in your heart, why did I receive the grace of God for this reason? In order that you might be holy and blameless before Him.
Why would God ever shed His grace and choose me in eternity past in order that you might be holy and do what's right before Him in all things? So this is God's plan for His people because it is a reflection of who God is because our God is righteous. He does what is right. Now, I want to move into the second thing and talk about righteousness defined because we need to understand what it is in all of its detail as much time as we have to do that. And we can reduce the law down to the Ten Commandments. Because in the giving of the Ten Commandments, God says, All right, now that you're mine, I'm going to tell you how to be right. I'm going to teach you how to be right in relationship to me, your God. And I'm going to teach you how to be right in relationship to your neighbor. And so we have the Ten Commandments. And the first teach us how to be right in regard to God. If you remember the very first commandment in the details of the doing right, God says, You shall have no other gods before me. And so in order to do right as a Christian, you recognize no other God. They are all false gods. They are all enemies. They are all wicked. And in order to do right by God, there is one God. He has a capital G. He created all things and His Son's name is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to do right by God, that's the only way to do that. God defined righteousness for you. And then again, in the second part of the last six of these Ten Commandments, God says, this is how you'll do right by your neighbor. Do you remember the first one in doing right? Honor your father and your mother. You want to do right? Yes, Lord. You want to be righteous? Yes, Lord. Then honor your father and your mother. It's interesting that Paul picks that back up in Ephesians 6 where Paul writes, Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. It's the same root word as righteousness. So you kids that are listening, you want to do right by God, then you will obey your parents. If you do not want to do right by God, then you will disobey your parents. It's really that simple. God defined it in the law. This is righteousness for you. Obey your parents. And God sees that as righteous behavior. And again, we're talking about in the law. And again, it's a reflection of who God is. We'll eventually get to Romans 7 where Paul will write these words. The law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Every single command in the Old Testament is righteous because God wrote it and it's right and He meant for them to do it. In fact, God says these are not idle words. This is life for you. And this is how they would understand that they would receive life by doing what was right. And that is righteousness. Now, head with me to Deuteronomy 25. Keep something there in Romans. We'll be right back. This to me is the best illustration that I could think of. And I think of it often. I think it's a really good one to help us understand what righteousness is. And it's one of the laws that was given in Deuteronomy 25. Now, recently, thankfully, I'm getting too old to stand in the same place for 10 hours and concentrate enough to fill prescriptions. So I got the option of moving out into the compounding room. So I spend many of more joyful hours by myself in a lab making medicine. And during or a part of that process in, in making medicine is I have a balance or a scale. Now, to give you some idea of this scale, a paperclip, a small paperclip weighs about one gram. My scale measures to the one one thousandth of a paperclip. If you know the table, that's one milligram. Very tiny amount. And I even compound medication that you put in a baby's mouth and they swallow it. And I'm terrified every time that they do it. I check it and I double check it and I triple check the scale and I carefully measure all the medication that will go into the compound. I have someone come in, check all my math, review everything that I've done. So two of us will put our approval on it because when it comes to a baby, I'm like super careful. It comes to the adult, I'm like, ah, they'll be fine. But really, you get the process, right? That balance, that scale has to be right if that thing is wrong someone could get hurt. And so I go before that balance and I square it, I check it, I measure it, it's got a little bubble on it to make sure it's level. 
I hit zero about three times to make it zero itself back down to perfect zero. So when I put that little first bit of powder on there, that thing starts spinning, the milligrams start adding up. And then I scrape that off and again, most of the time put it in a liquid form and people stick that in their mouth and they take it. Pretty serious business. Got to be right. Okay? Now, a law was given in regard to scales and balances in God's Old Testament law. Look with me at verse 14. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 14. God says there, You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. You shall have a full and just weight. You shall have a full and just measure that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God will give you. For everyone who does these things, everyone who acts unjustly, notice the language, is an abomination to God. In other words, if you don't square your balance, that's an abomination to God. And here's what would happen. They lived in a different culture where they bartered and traded. And so people would have balances and scales in their house and the eggs or the wheat or whatever would be weighed and the, the shekels would be measured out according to the weight and everything was based upon what that scale said was what you paid or how many eggs you swapped or how many chickens you gave. Everything was to be measured perfectly, accordingly, justly, squarely. And God says, don't you dare fix that balance. If you do that, that's an abomination in my sight. Now how horrible would it be if I fixed the balance in the compounding room and it measured double what it truly was. Let me tell you what, I would make double the money. If it was, I was measuring out one gram, but I doubled my balance and I put a half a gram on there, but my balance spun up and said it's one gram, I just doubled my money. And if I ever got caught doing that, and believe it or not, a pharmacist has, and he went to federal prison for a great many years, and justly and rightly so, I don't think, might be a bit optimistic, but I don't think there's a person on the planet that would think that that was just. If I fixed my scales to make more money, I think everyone would go, that's not right. That man should be punished. In the same vein, God says, you're going to have balances and scales in your markets and in your homes. And let me tell you something. If you fix that thing, it's going to be an abomination in my sight because that's not right. And anybody can see that. Now, I'll come back to that thought because you know how south they're going to go. But I do you want you to understand that the people were expected to obey every single word in the, in the law. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28, probably just one page. And I want you to notice with me in verse 1. These are the blessings and the cursings. Blessings for obedience, cursings for disobedience. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 1. The Lord says, Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all of His commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey. Blessed you'll be in the city and blessed you'll be in the country. And on and on and on it goes for 14 verses. Bless, 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 bless. I'll smack you upside the head with blessing. Everywhere you go, you're just going to run into more blessing if you obey. Now the flip side of that, verse 15, But it shall come to pass that if you do not obey the Lord your God, to observe all His commandments and all of His statutes, which I charge you today, <clears throat> excuse me, that all these curses will come upon you. Cursed you'll be in the city. Cursed you'll be in the country. Cursed will be your basket. Cursed will be your kneading bowl. And for 14 verses, I believe it goes on. Cursed, 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 cursed. I will curse you in your coming and going if you do not obey. So I want you to understand all these laws that we've talked about, God commanded them and expected them to obey every single one of them. In fact, God would say this in, in Proverbs, to do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. You need to spend that on your will for a little while. God says for you to do right is more important for you to worship. 
Oh, you think so much of your worship, and rightly so, we ought to worship God. But God says, listen, more important than worship is that you do what's right. That's my expectation of you. You do what I tell you to do, and you don't do what I tell you not to do. You do what's right. And I think more of that than I do all of your sacrifices and praise. This is important. And it even goes deeper. We know that it goes deeper. These were not just, oh, I've got to fix my my balance right and make sure it's square. We also know that from the law, God wasn't just concerned with the balance being square. He was concerned with your heart being square because all of us at some point in time might have went, man, if I just just fix that balance just a little bit, I I can buy food at the end of the month. I can make my house payment. I mean, sure the Lord doesn't want me to go broke. I can, I can just tweak that balance just a little bit. And I can tell you what, things will be a lot easier in this house. And so the law even addressed the matters of the heart. God was concerned about that desire in your heart that wanted you to fix the balance. And it was an abomination and it was a sin to Him. We may not see it in balances, but listen, this is where you'll see it in Exodus 20. Again, the Ten Commandments, how to do right by your neighbor. Here's one, you shall not commit adultery. You want to do right? Then you won't do that. In fact, in Leviticus 20, this is the judgment of that. If there's a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. That's a just judge. And all of God's people should say amen because that's right. You don't do right by your bride, then you ought to be put to death. That's the law of God. That's what's right. He's a righteous judge. Now you'll understand why David prayed in Psalms 51. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you're justified, which is the word righteousness, when you speak and you're blameless when you judge. David said, Lord, I know that the payment for my sin with Bathsheba is death. I ought to die, but I beg you for your mercy. And we see the mercy of God and David doesn't die. But someone did die for David's sin with Bathsheba. Someone died a horrible death in the place of David. So don't ever think David's sin was swept under the rug in the grace of God. And don't ever think that your sin or my sin is ever for once swept under the rug or forgotten or removed or anything like that. Someone did die. Your sin, whether it was yesterday or today or tomorrow, is judged righteously and it is put to death. The blessed thing is it was the death of Christ that your sin was paid for. Those that you'll do this week, they weren't forgotten. They were paid in full. Jesus Christ shed His lifeblood for your sin as well as mine. Now back to adultery. We know it's not just the action of adultery, right? Hopefully not a man in this room would ever puff his chest out and go, Oh, I'm innocent in regard to adultery, Lord. I've never done such a wicked thing. Well, when Jesus preaches his first sermon, listen to his words. Oh, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her in his heart has already, already committed adultery. See how the law works? Jesus is like, boys, you missed it. You thought it was on the outside. But listen, the law works all the way down to the inside. And so there's not a man among us who could puff his chest out and go, I'm not guilty of that, Lord. In fact, we all have to bow our heads, man and woman alike, and go, I'm, I'm terribly guilty of that, and I'm so thankful for the death of Christ in regard to that, or I would die eternally myself. You see how precious this gospel is. So Paul's conclusion that he reaches is really not that hard of a conclusion when we get to Romans 3. You're in, you're in Deuteronomy 28, if I'm not mistaken. Turn the page to Deuteronomy 31. And I want to show you, even though God's expectation and requirement was obedience, He knew that there would be none. This is, to me, is one of the saddest moments that we're going to find in Scripture. Deuteronomy 31, look at verse 16. Look what God says in His last words to a dying man. Deuteronomy 31, verse 16. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, 
you're about to lie down with your fathers. And this people will arise and they will play the harlot with the strange gods of the land into the midst which they are going. They will forsake me. They will break my covenant which I have made with them. And then my anger will be kindled against them in that day. I will forsake them. I will hide my face from them. And they will be consumed with many evils and many troubles that will come upon them. Moses, thank you for 40 faithful years of service and ministry to the body of Christ. But I just want you to know, no sooner than your body will grow cold, than this people's heart will grow cold toward me, and they'll break every single commandment and law and statute that I ever laid down. That's a depressing thing. So even though God knew, He still commanded. Even though God knew that they would break and be unrighteous, He still required righteousness of them. In fact, we'll talk more about this week. There's a lot of things that God requires of us that He turns around and gives us. So when we hear Moses' words, in Romans 3, there is none righteous, there's not even one. There's no one who understands, there's no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become useless. There's no one who does good, there's not even one. I mean, like Paul, of course. Of course there's not. That should be our conclusion. There's not a single solitary righteous man alive. In fact, you remember the balance? Excuse me, go with me to Amos chapter 8. Look what they did with the balance. Amos chapter 8. I want to read to you in verses 4 and 5. Now Amos is speaking to the nation of Israel before Israel is taken up into captivity. And you can find the very same conversation in Isaiah 1 because Isaiah is speaking to Judah before they go into captivity. But I want you to notice the balance. Amos chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. Hear this. You who trample the needy to do away with the humble or the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over so that we can go back to selling grain? When will the Sabbath be over that we can open up the wheat market to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger and to cheat with dishonest scales? Look what they had done. Such a simple thing, right? Don't fix the scale. It's an abomination to me. And here we have several years later, Amos the prophet warning the people before they go off into captivity. Well, you've done it. You've butchered the scales. You've made the bushel smaller and the coin bigger. You're making twice what you're supposed to make. You've not done right. And it only gets worse because when Jesus walks into the temple in Matthew 21, remember these words? Jesus entered the temple, drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And He said to them, It stands written that my house should be called a house of prayer, but you've made it into a what? Den of what? Robbers. The scale fixing moved out of the house and into the church. They were parked outside of the temple or just as you came into the temple and they had fixed scales and they were selling sacrifices for them to walk in and worship God with and they were doubling their money because the scales and the balances were fixed. You're like, are, are, are you kidding? Is there no end to our sin? No, there's none. If you were here Wednesday night, I heaped up a whole truckload of Old Testament words that God uses to help us understand. We are morally bankrupt. We'll fix the scale and we'll do it up here behind the pulpit just to benefit ourselves. I don't think of anything is more clearly taught in Scripture than the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. It is taught from the first pages of the Bible all the way to the end of the Bible. We are unrighteous and unfit before God because we refuse to do what's right. Time and time again. Which brings us to the righteousness that's found in the gospel, the blessed gospel. So turn back with me. You're in Amos. Go with me to Romans chapter 3. 
who Martin Luther considered to be the centerpiece of the entire Bible. And I agree with him, but I also would say it's really a joyful thing, but it's an obvious thing. It's an obvious thing because God requires righteousness and we don't have it and we can't produce it. So if you're going to require it of it, God, you're going to have to give it. That's exactly what he does in the gospel. Let me begin, and, and I, I don't like a whole lot, so you guys stay with me. Let me, begin, let me start in, in verse 21 of Romans chapter 3. And look at the blessed words that Paul writes. But now, everything's different. But now apart from the law that defined righteousness, apart from that law, the righteousness of God has been manifested or made known. It's testified to by the law and the prophets, that righteousness even the righteousness of God, no less. And it comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. There's absolutely no distinction. Every single solitary man has sinned and fixed his own scales. Therefore, he falls short of the glory of God. And he is justified, by the way, that's the root word for righteousness. He is justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. I don't have better news than that. I will never have better news than that. The righteousness that is required of us is given to us through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, how unright we've been. But through Christ, when we stand before God, oh, how right we've been made. Y'all, it will be as though everything we've ever done, said, and thought was right to a T. My first thought about that is, well, that ain't right. But that's grace. That's the grace of God. Simply because of the faith that we saw exercised by a child this morning. He will stand before God and God will look upon him and see God's own righteousness that he has blessed that little heart with and he will be counted right from beginning to end because of what Jesus Christ has done. Now, I've got to introduce this righteousness with three more thoughts. So I want you to turn back to Romans chapter 1 and 16 and 17. And this is the part that I just need your attention and then we'll conclude with the Lord's Supper table. But the first thing that comes to us in these words that Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then notice verse 17. For in it, this gospel, the righteousness of God. In other words, this thing that you receive from God, you need to understand that it is of God. It's His. Everything that God ever did was right. And He credits you with that exact same righteousness. It is of God. Which means it is absolutely alien to you. There is a part of me that does not belong to me. Because it did not come from within me. It was given to me. It's alien. And just like when you see, receive an organ transplant, your body wants to resist that and they have to give you medication to reject that because it's foreign, it's alien. And when we get to Romans 6, you'll see the flesh that will lash out at that righteousness we've been given. And so there's this inner war, there's turmoil in your body because God's put something in your body that's alien to you. If you will, He's given you a righteous heart and your body's like, now where'd that come from? That's not for me. You're right, it's not from you. It's the righteousness of God that's been imputed or implanted within you. It's perfect. It's holy. It didn't come from you. You didn't muster it up. You didn't make it. God didn't give you some seeds and you sowed it and you had Jack's beanstalk growing up in your heart. That's not what happened. God gave you His justifying righteousness and imputed into your heart. And it's absolutely alien to you. And at the same time, it's absolutely wonderful because not only is the righteousness of God, meaning of God, it's the righteousness in which God approves. I told you there's two things. This is the second thing. It's the righteousness that God approves of. Now, we've made it far enough for me to make this statement. 
you do realize the majority of the world is going to stand before God in their own righteousness. I buried a man one time who said to me, I hope I've done enough. To which I knew at that moment that I had failed to share the gospel clearly and adequately because he did not understand the gospel. Let me answer that for you. Have you done enough? Not on your life. Not to stand before God and be accepted by God. You've never done enough. You never will do enough. I don't care what you do. If you sell all your possessions and give to the poor and live among the poor and minister to their needs until their dying day, you'll stand before God completely unrighteous and unfit for glory. You've never done anything to be accepted by God. That's the beautiful thing about this righteousness that He gives you. It's His, therefore He approves. And when He sees it, He's like, absolutely, you are perfectly fit for glory. You have a righteousness that's not your own. You have my righteousness. You are my child. And you will be welcomed and received into glory forever. So when Paul speaks about this righteousness, it's a beautiful thing because he communicates to us in these passages, it's of God. And it's given to us and it's been approved by God. Therefore, your salvation is so sure that the Bible says there's nothing in all of creation, come heaven or hell, that can erase it, remove it, damage it, or distrust it. It's yours and it's forever. Because it was given to you by God. Now I've got to tell you two other words and then we're done this morning. And I I didn't want to say this at the last because I didn't want to lose you. But we have to understand this for the book of Romans. So I I have to bring these two things up. And there's two types. We're back to two. There's two types of righteousness that we're going to see in the book of Romans. The first one is, and it may be a word that you struggle with, but I can explain it rather easily, is the word forensic righteousness. And the second one is ethical righteousness. And I don't want there to be any confusion this morning, so I'm going to go over both of these briefly, and then we'll come to the table. First, the forensic righteousness. Now, odds are you watch this stuff on TV all the time. We've got CSI Miami, New Orleans, Vegas, New York, and probably Idaho and Nebraska before it's all said and done. Okay? All that they're doing is forensic science. And it's called forensic because it's admissible in a court of law to make a decision by a judge. Take DNA, for instance. If there's a crime and you leave your blood behind and they do DNA testing, forensic science, and it's a match on you, buddy, you're going to jail because that's forensic evidence that can be used in a court of law. They've proven that you're there. So there's no need to lie about it any longer. So all these shows, that's all it's about. It's, it takes place most of the time in a lab, and it is pretty interesting, I guess. I like the lab. And they're all working around forensics. In fact, there's a lot of kids today going into that in college. They're fascinated by all this stuff that's been on TV, so they're getting a degree in forensics so they can test blood in a lab and analyze all sorts of things. But that's what they're doing. They're working to have evidence that's admissible in a court of law in order for people to be declared innocent or guilty. It is a wonderful thing. So this word forensic is a Latin word that literally means before a forum or before a court. So here's the deal. And and, and commentators and exegetes have long since before the days of Calvin called this righteousness forensic righteousness. You know why? Because it's a type of righteousness that will work in a court of law. In fact, it'll work in the courts of God. Isn't that beautiful? God gives you a forensic righteousness. So that when you stand before God in His courts, He goes, not guilty. Based on what? Clear evidence. There's a righteousness in this person and it's not his own. It's been imputed into his soul and it's the righteousness of God. And then all the courts of God, all the courts in, in heaven will declare righteous, righteous, righteous. Based on what? Evidence. 
There's a forensic righteousness. Beloved, that's what you're saved by. There's another righteousness that Paul's going to get into in, in Romans chapter 6 that talks about an ethical righteousness. But you're not saved by that. You're saved by the forensic righteousness. You're saved by the righteousness of Christ. But that righteousness, let's move from forensic to ethical, that righteousness is not dead. It's a living and active righteousness. And so because God has implanted this forensic, beautiful, powerful righteousness in you, guess what your life starts looking at looking like now? Looks like I'm doing what's right. Where did you get the knowledge of what is right and wrong? From this blessed gift of God, this righteousness, now I can begin to discern truly what's right and wrong, even within my heart. And so now this manifestation starts building and starts growing, and now there's this beautiful ethical righteousness. You're not saved by that, but you are sanctified by that. You are made like Christ. So here's how these two things work together. If there is a forensic, there will be an ethical. In fact, the ethical is evidence of the forensic. Because of what God has done through Christ, I now can be righteous and do right, even from the heart. I can go to work and look at that scale and square it and square it and square it in joy of heart, knowing I'm doing right by God. Because according to God, scales ought to be square. That's the difference between forensic and ethical. Let me give you two passages, several of you taking notes. And then we're finished. We'll come to the table. Genesis 15 is the forensic righteousness. Paul will bring this up in Romans 4. This is where God promised Abraham that he would have a son and it says in Genesis 15, 16, then he believed or had faith in the Lord and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Forensic. God says, Abraham, this is what I'm going to do for you. And Abraham says, Amen. Man, I don't see it. I'm 100. My wife's 93. Okay. Never had a baby before, but why not? I believe you wholeheartedly, God. And God says, that's righteousness. That's faith. I credit to you that forensic righteousness. But when you turn the page and get to Genesis 18, and now Abraham's standing in a desert and there's three angels standing before them, and one of them is the Lord. Listen to what the Lord says to the other two angels. I have chosen Abraham so that he might command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness. That's the ethical righteousness. Now I mentioned them both because I can't have you confused when we're talking about the gospel. God has made you righteous through the work of Christ. But because He's done that, God is making you righteous through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me speak to you who've yet to believe, even if a child is listening this morning. It is required of you by God that you be right. From the tip to the toes. From the out to the end. God requires of you that you be perfect and right in every single way. Now, even a child realizes, well, that ain't me. Well, we know. We're your parents. But we also know that as parents, we're wrong. Not just on the outside, we're wrong on the inside. So we're all in the same boat. And the Bible says when we look to God in faith, we receive that perfect righteousness that is required. And you'll stand before Him, just like the rest of us, and the judge Himself will say, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. And it's simple faith. So I ask all of you this morning to examine your own hearts. Watch a child do it. And with all the faith in the world, He said, I do. I know who Jesus is. And that's the faith 
that God requires for the righteousness He requires. For you saints of God, let me remind you of this as we come to the table. I don't know of any other better time to remind you of this. That righteousness that you have, it's not dead nor dormant. It's living and it's active. You know what's right. You know what's right because it's been written on your heart. You've been given the Spirit, which is the power to do right. Now let me ask you, why aren't you doing right? I mean, why? I ask myself that question. Like, what, what's wrong with you? <laughs> why can't you do right? Why can't you just think right for just a minute, Joy? Could you just for a second? But let me tell you, we have the beautiful gift of repentance. And we have the beautiful gift of the Spirit. And we can rise up out of that muck and mire. And we can walk righteously before the Lord. And He has told us that we ought to do so. So as the people of God, could we please do so? Especially in the day that we live. May our words and our actions and the meditations of our heart be right in everything. Let's pray.